Good morning. It's a, it's a privilege to be able to stand in there today, fill in for Pastor Jeff. Our text this morning will be from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, and I don't have it on the overhead, so you'll have to follow along in your Bible, be it paper or digital. For over 2,000 years, Christ has been building his church. And what began with a handful of spirit-powered individuals has spread over the face of the entire globe and has altered the course of history more than any empire, more than any philosophy, or more than any other movement. No people group has had a greater impact on the, on the world than those whose lives have been transformed by the power of the gospel message. And nothing else on this side of the cross has changed the world like the influence of Christ's church. But influence goes both ways. And throughout church history, we have seen the detrimental effects uh, and sometimes disastrous results of the church being influenced by the world. And ministers and individuals who started well with godly intentions have been influenced by worldly ideas and philosophies that ultimately enticed them away from the truths of Scripture. And the results have been some of the worst atrocities committed in the name of Christianity. And so when the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the church at Colossae, the effects of worldly influence were one of his primary concerns. You see, at the time that the letter was written, the Colossian church was still in its infancy. It had likely been planted by believers uh, traveling from Ephesus up the Lycus River Valley, preaching the gospel in the cities and villages there, and they planted a church in the city of Colossae. And from his letter, we understand that Paul had never yet visited this church, but he only knew of it through reports from Epaphras. And he hoped to visit them in the future. But in the meantime, he wrote the letter of Colossians both to introduce himself to the believers there and also to communicate truths essential to their spiritual well-being. And I believe that Paul intended the truths communicated in this letter to serve as a sort of inoculation against the varied false teachings and distortions of the gospel that were already circulating among the churches. And so the letter of Colossians and what Paul communicates in there really centers around three central truths. First of all, it establishes the preeminence of Christ above all else. Secondly, it warns against the danger of worldliness and adopting a worldly mindset and worldly philosophies as believers. And thirdly, in light of those first two truths, it gives instructions of what their new life in Christ should look like. And so before we get to our text this morning, I want to give just a little bit of context and background from the first two chapters. Immediately after his opening greeting and thanksgiving, uh, beginning in chapter 1, verse 15, Paul launches into this exalted presentation of who Christ is. And using some of the most elevated language that you'll find in the New Testament, Paul clearly identifies Jesus as the creator, as the sustainer of all things. The full revelation of God being found in him alone. Paul says he's the only means of redemption for sinners because he alone has successfully made atonement for sin by his death on the cross. 
And this, Paul argues, sets him above all other things. There is no other plan of redemption besides Christ. There is no other means of salvation apart from Christ. And there is no knowledge of God subsequent to or separate from what we have revealed in Christ. And understanding these truths would serve to guard the Colossians against those who would falsely claim to have new revelation from God or secret knowledge of God that's found outside the teaching of Christ and his apostles. And Paul also warns them against the dangers of worldly-mindedness. And so beginning in chapter 2, verse 6, he cautions them that there there is a so-called knowledge or philosophy that is not true knowledge at all. And while it may masquerade as godly wisdom, underneath it is merely human tradition. It is empty and deceptive and will ultimately draw them away from Christ. And the believer who is allured by this worldly wisdom will find their focus drawn away from trusting in Christ and they will find themselves trusting more in their own strength and their own ability. They'll be turned away from pleasing God to worrying about pleasing men. And they will begin to value temporal possessions and comforts more than the truth and more than real spiritual growth. Who they are and what they desire will begin to be shaped by their own ideas or by the culture around them rather than by the Word of God. And this sort of worldly thinking is very subtle and it often slips in in ways that we're not always aware of. It finds its way into the church sometimes in the form of man-made traditions and rules which go beyond the commands of Scripture. And so, an example Paul gives beginning in chapter 2, verse 16, he warns about those who would pass judgment on another believer because of what they eat or what they drink or because they don't observe certain ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law. He goes on to say that while such restrictions may appear wise and religious, they're really of no help whatsoever in actually dealing with sin. And ultimately, what they lead to is us trusting in the works that we do rather than trusting in the work that Christ has done. And then finally, beginning in chapter 3, Paul instructs the believers on what their new life in Christ should look like. And in the opening verses of this chapter, he touches on what I think are three key realities in the lives of believers which enable them, by God's grace, to overcome worldly influence. And it's from here that we'll draw our text this morning. Look with me at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. So the first reality in these four verses that Paul wants them to grasp as he's applying all of chapter 1 and chapter 2 now in beginning in chapter 3 to how they should live as new believers in Christ, he wants them to grasp the reality of their position in Christ. As believers, we face a constant temptation to focus more on our standing in the culture and our standing with men rather than our standing before God. We give more thought to the clothes we wear 
or the house we live in or what our friends think of us than we do about who we are in Christ and what we're doing and whether it pleases Him. And so Paul begins here in verse 1 with the believer's position in Christ saying, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And so notice first the, the understanding that we have been raised together with Christ. Uh, the term there is, is, as it is in the English there, it's a co-resurrection, raised with Him, together. And Paul has already explained this some back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where he says, "...in Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So there we see all three aspects of that, that putting off of sin and self, that circumcision, cutting away the death of sin, the death to the old man, to the flesh, buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith uh, into new life. And so as believers, we participate in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in our salvation. We die to sin in the flesh. We are baptized, which symbolizes burial, and we are raised to new spiritual life, reconciled to God, and made a completely new creation by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And so when Paul speaks like this of our being raised together with Christ, he's not just using spiritual symbolism or religious jargon. He's referring to a fundamental reality that is at the heart of the gospel. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so we too, if we are in Christ, have passed from death unto life. And Paul then makes his argument uh, by means of implication on that. He says, if we have died and been raised as a new creation, if we have gone from being the enemies of God to being in right relationship with Him, then our goals and our desires will be transformed. What we value will change. What we seek after now will be things that pertain to the new life that we have in Christ. God's commands in His Word, which we once hated and railed against because they exposed our sin, we now find that we love because they reveal His character and they teach us what pleases Him. On this side of the cross, we will be striving for different goals, living for a different purpose. It will be a complete transformation that comes about from that new life that we have in Christ. In other words, if we have been raised with Christ, we should seek things which are above. And this change of desires is not something that is just speculative. It simply might happen, maybe. If we are in Christ... The Holy Spirit is in us and will transform our desires to align with His. Now, if you've been a believer for long, you understand very well that this is not an immediate whole transformation. We are still living with the effects of sin in a body that is still under the curse. And so, it is a sanctification process but we can be sure that a person who is transformed by the grace of God and indwelt by the Spirit of God will not remain as they are. Through the process of sanctification, they will be 
conformed into the image of Christ. This is also not something that we just work up by our own will alone. Now, while our redeemed wills do play a crucial part in this process, we realize that it is ultimately accomplished and made certain, not by our efforts and striving, but by Christ's work. His position gives us the certainty of our standing before God. And that's why Paul bases all of this in the fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Because Jesus perfectly accomplished redemption on our behalf, and because He is now reigning from the Father's right hand, we can have complete confidence in our standing before God. And when we fully grasp our position in Christ, it will result in a difference, in a transformation in our way of thinking. The mundane temporal things that the world values will lose their appeal. The opinions of men will no longer hold the sway over us that they once did. Our priority becomes what pleases God and what brings glory and honor to Him. The second reality that Paul communicates here has to do with the believer's mindset in Christ. Worldly thinking will tempt us to focus on earthly appearances rather than heavenly realities. Worldly thinking will judge the effectiveness of a ministry by numbers and budgets rather than by the spiritual fruit that it produces. A worldly mindset will judge God's faithfulness based on the current balance in our bank accounts. And it will prioritize comforts and ease at the moment over long-term spiritual rewards. Paul addresses this idea of the believer's mindset in verse 2. He says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. As we consider the believer's mindset, the first thing we must ask is, what does it mean here to set your mind on something? I mean, you have many thoughts that cross your mind during the day, right? For me, they're distracting thoughts sometimes. I don't get the things done that I need to because of the many thoughts that cross my mind during the day. But your mindset is the one thing that is foremost in your mind. It's the one set of ideas or beliefs that is so central to your thinking that all other thoughts and all other ideas are shaped and formed by it. It affects what you think about, how you think about it, and the decisions that you ultimately make. And this is not something that you just have to acquire. Everyone has a mindset. As newborn infants, we are born with the one singular mindset of me and what I want. If you have little ones, you know what that's like. Everything else in the world is processed through the mental lens of what benefits me and what makes me happy. And as we grow older, this becomes a little bit more nuanced. Um, It might center around social standing or career or money or pleasure, but ultimately the focus is still on me. However, as believers who have been redeemed by God's grace, our mindset should be transformed. Paul admonishes the Colossian believers here to set their minds on things above. If we are in Christ, our thinking should be shaped by a heavenly perspective. Our mindset changes from what benefits me to what pleases God. From what does popular culture say about the nature of life, gender, the meaning of existence, to what does God say 
about the reality of the world that he has created. And as Christians, we should see the world differently because we are looking at it from a different point of view. We're no longer viewing the world through the distorted lens of sin and self, but now we're seeing things clearly in the light of the heavenly realities of God's sovereign rule, Christ's triumphant victory, and the hope of the age to come. And this affects our outlook in every area of life, and it transforms the way that we think. And of course, by implication, if our minds are set on things above, this means our minds will not be set upon things that are on the earth. We no longer look to culture to define reality because God's Word is the standard of truth. It is the foundation of what we believe and how we order our lives. We don't stand in the pulpit and give our opinion based on scientific and philosophical studies or cultural research. We preach the Word of God. And now let me offer one point of clarification here. In saying this, I do not mean to imply that believers are to ignore earthly things entirely. We live in the world, we interact with the world, but worldly philosophies and priorities must not be foundational to our way of thinking. We must set our mind on things above. The third reality that Paul reminds them of is the believer's hope in Christ. Worldly thinking tempts us to focus on what is present rather than what is eternal. It causes us to see the here and now, right now, as all that matters and to give no thought to anything beyond the world that we see around us. But Paul knows, however, that it is essential for believers to have an eternal perspective. And so in verse 3 and 4, he says, For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So I think it's interesting in those verses, Paul begins by reminding them that they are dead. That is, as believers, they have died to sin and to the flesh. And so this broken world is no longer their true home. They are strangers and pilgrims here. They know that this world is passing away. Its time is almost up, and soon it will be no more. But as believers, we have a part in the world to come. In a sense, we've already got one foot through the door, so to speak. We're already living in light of eternal eternity. And eternal realities. So from the world's perspective, the believer who trades all to follow Christ, leaves everything behind to pursue Him for the sake of His glory and for the sake of the gospel, they've wasted their life. They look at the pastor who labors away for a lifetime in some small out-of-the-way church on less than a living wage, and they think, wasted. They look at the believer who stays on in a difficult job or a bad neighborhood because they want to be a light in the darkness, and they think, what a waste. 
They look at the missionary who leaves everything behind to labor among some unknown, unreached tribe tucked away on the other side of the world, and they see a life wasted. And if we're not careful, this way of worldly thinking can creep into our minds, causing us to doubt the promises of God. When we, don't, when we start thinking in a worldly manner, we're looking in terms of numbers and metrics, and we don't see those sort of results, and we get our eyes off of the heavenly realities, off of the spiritual uh, impact that is being had in lives and onto other things, it's easy for us to begin to doubt the goodness of God and His promises. But Paul wants these believers to know that their life is not wasted, nor is it lost, but like a precious treasure that is kept tucked safely away out of view. Their life is secure in Christ. See, the full reality of the new life that we have been given in Christ is not yet revealed. Some of it even seems hidden from us. We don't yet see or experience all of the reality of the new life that we have been given in Christ. We still await the final consummation and some of that for those things to be fully realized and revealed. But we can rest assured that that life is safe with Christ. Nothing can steal it. No power can destroy it. Paul makes clear here that our life is hidden where with Christ in God. Where is Christ? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. So in order to, to steal, in order to destroy the life that we have been given, they would have to assault the very throne of God and overcome Christ himself and as Paul has already made clear, Christ sits in that exalted place precisely because he has already proven himself greater than all others. And one day Christ will return. And when he appears, Paul says, we will appear with him in glory. And in that moment, all of those who tried so hard to hang on to this life tightly, to hang on to this world in that moment, they will lose it all. But for believers, the eternal life that we possess will finally, on that day, be fully revealed for all to see. The world looks now and thinks, what a waste. They've wasted their life. They've given it up. It's lost. It's a write-off. But in the moment that Christ appears, suddenly the true reality shines forth. They didn't waste their life. I did. I'm the one who lost life. They had life all along. It just, I didn't see it before, but now here it is revealed with the coming of the Son of God. And when we consider that day, what is this world and all that it offers by comparison? When you think of that one moment when Christ returns, what is this world in comparison with that? It's a vapor. It's gone in a moment, swallowed up, in eternity. And calling this to mind should shake us from worldly thinking and cause us to set our minds and our hopes firmly on things above. So as we go from here today, how should we seek to practically apply these truths? I mean, after all, we're talking about heavenly mindsets and hidden realities. How does this relate to life on the ground, so to speak? I'd like to offer two thoughts in closing about that. First of all, having a heavenly mindset does not deny the reality 
of our physical existence in the world. God made us as embodied creatures. We are not just a spirit with a body, but we were created as body and spirit. And as believers, we have now been made spiritually new, uh, and at the resurrection, our bodies also will be made new. And we will enter into eternity and live in glorified bodies forever. So setting our minds on things above should not be misunderstood as some sort of Gnostic idea downplaying our physicality as humans. We recognize that God made us physical creatures, but instead of placing our hopes in this sinful flesh, we instead look forward with anticipation to the day when we will be renewed both body and soul forever. We also recognize that God intends for believers to live in this world. When Jesus prayed for believers in John 17, he said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So this world, this life right now with all of its hardships and difficulties and problems is exactly where God intends you to be. You see, we have a purpose in this world to glorify God and to proclaim the good news, but we can only do that effectively if our thoughts and our actions are influenced by heavenly realities. And the second thing is a heavenly mindset truly does have on-the-ground effects. It affects this life, the here and now, this world. We've probably all heard the, the cliche, the expression, so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. And the reality is that far from being unrelated to life in the world, a mind that has been transformed by the Spirit of God has, a massive, has massive implications for how we view the world. It changes it completely. I recommend... Uh, that you read the rest of chapter 3 this afternoon, and you'll see that Paul goes on to make that very point. In verses 5 through 17, he describes the on-the-ground effects of having a mind that, is, that causes us to, to put off sin and put on Christ-likeness and results in spiritual fruit in our life and in the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. So having a clear understanding of our position in Christ, having a mind that is set on heavenly realities, and having a certain hope of Christ's return will impact every thought, every decision, and every action that we take in this world. And Paul summarizes this section of chapter 3 with a fitting conclusion in verse 17. He says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's pray as the praise team comes. God of all grace, You are above all righteous and holy. Yet You condescended to redeem fallen men and women who were Your enemies. Thank You that You have delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of Your beloved Son, Help us to live in this world with all of its allure and distractions and to always remember who we are in Christ. Help us not be swayed by worldly thinking and pressures to conform to the culture around us. Set our minds firmly on your truth. May it be fixed in our thoughts so that we will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work as we await the appearance of Christ. 
when the new life that we have received will finally be fully revealed. Amen. Wow, what a fitting summary to the message. Abiding in Christ. I mean, really, that sums up everything that we talked about this morning. Knowing our position in Christ, having our mind set on Christ, having our hope firmly fixed in Him, all of that relates to abiding in Him. And I think of Jesus' words about the vine. We're abiding in Him. If we are connected to Him, we're drawing our life, our strength, our sustenance, our source, everything from Him, then we will have our mind fixed on Him. We will have our hope set in Him because we recognize that everything that we have, everything that we are, is of Christ. Let's close in prayer this morning and you'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you, Lord, for what it means to belong to you. Lord, I thank you that you have set your redeeming love upon us as your people. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to abide in you. Lord, you keep us by your power. You save us by your grace. Lord, abiding in you does not mean that we somehow keep ourselves in you, Lord but it's about changing our mind and our heart to recognize that everything that we have, Lord, is dependent upon you. As believers, our whole life, our hope, our future, our sustenance is drawn from being connected to Christ the vine. And Lord, if we are connected to you, if we abide in the vine, we will bear much fruit. Go with us as we leave this place today. Help us to be lights, Lord, uh, to our families, to our community to shine the light of the gospel and to bring glory and honor to you in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray, amen.